and let's pray. Come down, Lord, in power by your Holy Spirit and speak to us as we need it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, oh, I want to have a question time at the end of the sermon. Um, and I'll do that after I give you a quiet time. So we'll do something a little bit different. Question time after a quiet time at the end of the sermon. Let's see how it goes. This is a sermon about the wrong-headedness of denying the resurrection. Does it really matter what you imagine happens to us when we die? Or is it enough just to think, well, we go onwards, we go to be with God and those who've gone before us? Last week in the sermon I mentioned that A recent survey of Australians discovered that 55% of Australians say they believe in some kind of life after death. And surely, you know, almost all Christians um, would be in that 55%, would believe that it's not just the end when you die. But what kind of thing do we have in mind? Do we think of our souls kind of rising up to look down upon those who in life were near and dear? The idea that our ultimate destination is a disembodied afterlife, a going to heaven, leaving the body and the earth behind for some kind of purely spiritual existence, this notion is lodged in our imagination. You can think of all those cartoons of you know, arriving at the gate of heaven, which is up on a cloud somewhere up there, and there's St Peter or some gatekeeper angel, and he's got a, a clipboard, a list, to see if you should come in um, and, you know... You get in and you get a white robe perhaps and a harp and join the angelic choir and up you're there in a kind of floaty place. This imagining of the Christian hope does not include something that is at the heart of the gospel and Paul's chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and that is the resurrection of the dead, the return to bodily life that we see in Jesus' resurrection, the empty tomb, the encounters with the risen Jesus included talking with him, seeing him, eating with him, uh, touching him. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is concerned to put the resurrection of the dead back at the foundation of the Christian hope. Because some in Corinth were going so far as to deny the resurrection. And his question to them is, in verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And various questions might occur to you at this point. One of them might be, why? what does this mean, this resurrection of the dead being denied? And why would this be attractive? What, what would cause people to, to want to deny it? Um, then you might think, well, what, what is it so wrong about this? Why is it a bad idea? a misunderstanding, an error. Thirdly, we might ask, well, what do we learn about God when we understand what he has to say about the resurrection of the dead? So that's, that's really wanna, where I want to go in this sermon. So let's begin with why would the denial of the resurrection be attractive? What sense could it make uh, for people? And I want to say denial of the resurrection may appeal because the resurrection can seem a pretty unsophisticated belief or at least 
sophisticated opinion can differ from the idea of the resurrection. For in the ancient world, uh, in some sophisticated mindsets, bodies belonged to the lower, lesser parts of the world. Sophisticated people were influenced by philosophies that regarded what is changeable, what is degradable, what is material as kind of less pure and less admirable than what is unchanging, what is eternal, what is spiritual. And so immortal souls that you and I might possess were capable of purity, Um, but the mortal bodies that they were kind of trapped in dragged them down. And so death freed the soul from the body, and this was no bad thing uh, for much of ancient Greek thinking. The Jewish notion of resurrection, which Christ suddenly made real by coming forth from the tomb on the third day, this was very odd to such ancient world sophisticates. And when Paul preached to philosophers in Athens, we read in Acts 17.32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So it was clear that this was a very strange and novel notion. It was ridiculous to some, the resurrection of the body. Um, But curious, at least, to others, tell us more. And the resurrection, not just in the ancient world, but today also can strike people as crude and unsophisticated. Uh, John Shelby Spong wrote a book called Resurrection, Myth or Reality. I'm not here to recommend the book, but he argues in this book that resurrection has, he says, nothing to do with angelic announcements and empty tombs, with resuscitated bodies that appear and disappear. He says that Jesus journeyed through time into timelessness and through finitude into infinity. He says, but let's not you know, be so backward as to think that the resurrection is some kind of historical event, describable in ordinary terms. No, for Spong, it's only the fearful, the unimaginative, the narrow, who hang on to resurrection as something that might literally have happened. Rather, the more enlightened regard, resurrection is a kind of mythic way of talking about some non-bodily, indescribable experience or encounter that leads to God. It's not some miracle in history. How crude. And so, whether we're in the ancient world or in the modern world, people who like to reflect sophisticated opinion may have motives to deny that Jesus rose up from the dead and met his disciples in a resurrected body or deny that any such thing would be our future, for what sense could it make? For again, in the ancient world, it was kind of like souls were good, but bodies, bad. In the modern world, it might be, you know, literal truth of some kind of miracle involving a body is crude, but mythic truth about a spiritual reality that's only described in the kind of metaphor that's much more kind of cool. Now, why is this kind of wrong-headed to deny the resurrection of the body? Well, it's wrong-headed because it fails to grasp 
that God is redeeming the world through Jesus Christ. And when I say the world, I mean the creation that we inhabit, the physical and material cosmos that he has made. God is redeeming, renewing, reordering his creation through Christ. This is discussed in the central section of our passage, um, verses 20 to 28, and that's where I want to focus. And so if you've got questions about the other parts of it, you can pin me down with those later. Or questions about this central section, but I'm just going to talk about verses 20 to 28. Paul sets out the process of God's redemption of this creation, and he does it in kind of four steps. And the first of these steps is the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Christ here is described as the firstfruits, that is, the firstfruits of a harvest are those, you know, the first sheaves of wheat, the first box of apples that come in from the harvester's hand. And these embody the promise of the rest of the harvest that is sure to follow. And so to describe Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits is to link his resurrection to more to come. This resurrection thing is not over with him, but he is just the first showings of it. And our resurrection will be joined to his. Paul then compares or uh, aligns Christ's resurrection with Adam's death. And so in verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. To Paul's mind, there is a correspondence between on the one hand, death, and on the other hand, resurrection. Uh, resurrection is the thing that undoes death. It's God's solution to death. Uh, death is a returning to dust. As God said to Adam in Genesis 3, dust you are and to dust you will return. That's death. But resurrection is rising up from the sleep of death. It is awakening from the dust of the earth. Now, Adam bequeathed death to the race, to all of us, when he sinned. He caught us up in a world where death uh, had come in and held sway. But Christ bequeathed life in the form of the resurrection when he died for sin and rose from the dead. So verse 22, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But this uh, is... As Paul has said, an unfolding process. There is a first fruits and then there is a harvest to come. And so, secondly, uh, Christ the first fruits is followed by the resurrection of those who belong to him. And verse 23 points this out. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Paul taught not, not only the resurrection of Christ from the dead, but also his return, that at some point, uh, he and his people will be reunited. And when he comes, when he returns to the world that God loves, his people will be raised just as he was. Uh, we could compare 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Not as ghosts, but as people embodied. But even this is not the end. There are two more steps that Paul uh, outlines here. Firstly, Jesus will then dismantle the old order of things. 
And then secondly, he will hand the kingdom, the ordered kingdom, over to his father. And God will be, as Paul says, all in all. So let's take those two steps in order. Jesus will dismantle the current dysfunctional order of creation. Verse 24, he will destroy, that is, he will annul or bring to nothing all dominion, authority and power. For in this world that we live in, there are various powers. There are various structures of authority and and reign and rule. These can be human. Um, We live in a world full of, of governments and authorities and all kinds of power dynamics. They can be angelic, they can be demonic, they can be personal or impersonal. But whatever they are, whatever whatever guides or determines or directs how things happen in this world, Jesus will assert his reign over it all. And some will gladly bow the knee, some powers, and others may resist. And Paul personifies death in particular as one of those rogue powers, loose in creation, an enemy of God's purposes. And the culmination of Christ's taking apart The way the world now works is the destruction of that last enemy, death. Verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you might ask, where does Paul get these ideas from? Where does this vision come from? And he does show his source by a quote in verse 27. This is just one of his sources. There are others. Um, Verse 27, for he, God, has put everything under his feet. Now, that's a quote from uh, Psalm 8, verse 6. And if you open up Psalm 8, verse 6, you'll discover it's a, it's a kind of psalm about creation. It's, it's a psalm that reflects on God's creation of all things and how majestic God's name is in all the earth because of the wonder of what he has made and reflects on the place of human beings in that creation and says, you made him, that is humanity, mankind, Adam, you made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. There is this place that human beings are meant to occupy in God's creation, which is kind of mediating between heaven and earth. And in Psalm 8, in the first instance, is talking about God's original intention for humanity in creation, Adam, the man, humanity. But Paul understands Psalm 8 to express not just God's original intention, the one that's kind of gone wrong, but God's final intention, which is the same as his original intention. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeds in bringing about God's creative original intention vision and intention. God will have his creation set in good order. There will be harmony, it will be life, it will be flourishing. It will have humanity as the kind of governor general exercising God's rule in his world. Specifically, Jesus Christ will be the human being who sits right at the, at the, on the throne, on God's throne in his creation. He is the human being who establishes God's kingdom on earth. And that will become sorted when Jesus comes back. The final step will be that everything will come under God and God will be, as Paul says, all in all. 
And we read this in verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. And again in verse 28. The Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. Uh, we might translate that so that God may be everything in everyone. This is just one of the many ways the Bible talks about where God is taking things. Uh, you could say it's the Sabbath rest of God, the seventh day of creation. You could say it's the perfect rule of God's kingdom. You could say it's when he makes all things new and wipes away every tear. Here it is God's being all in all and his creation rejoicing at it. God will bring his creation to that goal through Christ, beginning with the resurrection, the sign of the defeat of death that is to come. And so to overlook the resurrection, to think only in terms of disembodied souls floating off to be with God in heaven, this is to fail to understand God's purposes and plans. It's to be ignorant of God in the end. Paul does not want Christians to be ignorant of God. The resurrection is central to the Christian hope. Thirdly then, and lastly, when we see the place of resurrection in God's plans, what might we understand about God? Well, I suggest this. When we see what God intends through the resurrection to achieve for creation, we understand that he loves what he has made. And he's not giving up on it. When John Shelby Spong says Jesus journeyed through time and into timelessness and through finitude into infinity and that we can all make that journey and then in God's presence know the timelessness of eternity, eternity he seems to be kind of, well, he has missed or forgotten or suppressed what is so important to Paul that God is redeeming his creation through Christ, its time and finitude, its physicality, its materialism. God is not leading us onto some timeless infinity, some abstract, disembodied dimension where we depart forever from the cosmos that God made for humanity to dwell with him. God is in the process of redeeming this creation in its materiality, in its physicality, because he loves what he has made. And he will bring it to its appointed end. And so, the world that you and I see and touch, the bodily life that you and I live, is precious to God. And it will not be rejected or discarded or abandoned. It will be resurrected. It will be redeemed, it will be renewed, it will be reordered. In all this, it will be radically transformed. And come next week, because we'll think about that transformation in more detail as Paul moves on. But when you and I go out from here into the world to live our lives, all the days the Lord gives us, we should, well, we should care about the world around us. We should not despise its materiality, its physicality, its bodiliness, its finitude, its, its logic, its 
reality, I mean, it, it is corrupted. It's in the grip of evil powers. It's subject to death and decay. It's a source of grief and difficulty and pain for us. This is not where it's going to be. The power and the reality of resurrection has begun. Begun its work. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ we'll all be made alive. And if this is the truth, this is the epic big scale picture about what is going on, what God's intentions are for the world, first and last then we must, we should put our trust and hope in Christ. As in Adam all die, but in Christ we'll all be made alive. And so you put your trust and hope in him and in him you will be made alive. Death will not have the last word over you, but resurrection will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for raising up our Lord Jesus Christ as the first fruits of a great harvest from the dead. We thank you for this vision that you will bring your creation to its appointed end in Christ and that we can know the benefit of that. And so, Lord, we pray that we will know life in Christ both here and be sure of our place in the, re- in the redeemed world to come. In the meantime, Lord, teach us how to live in this creation that you love and that you are redeeming. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.